Will you please turn with me this morning in your Bibles to once again to the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, where we are going to be looking together at verses 21 through 26. That's Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, and you can find that passage on page 1106 in your pew Bibles. This morning we are looking together here in Paul's epistle to the Romans at the wonderful, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. You probably noticed we're getting closer to October 31st, a day that we will be collectively as a church celebrating the Reformation, a heritage that we tie our own roots to as a denomination in the RCUS. And at its foundation, the Reformation was a call back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and an understanding of the gospel's true centrality to all of life for the Christian. I can think of no better place for us to go to consider that than here in this third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And you will notice I have titled this sermon part one. It's because Probably in this group of verses will we'll take at least two weeks leading up to the 31st as it introduces to us a very crucial doctrine that we must come to grips with in gaining a deeper appreciation for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a doctrine that most certainly was front and center in the Reformation. And I must confess to you this morning that I've been very excited to look once again at this very Christ-exalting section of this letter. This morning in this text that is before us, the Apostle Paul makes that great transition from the cold hard truth of the bad news of man's ruinous condition before God to the wonderful, life-giving, life-transforming, life-motivating Good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've spoken together before many times of the bad news that precedes the good news that Paul is so eager to preach to these who are gathered in Rome, indeed to preach even to the whole world. And I think that we've clearly seen that it was and that it is still the necessary starting point in any real consideration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must begin our thought process of our situation in this life, that is, of our standing with God with the very bad news that we are not ever, apart from His grace and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, in God's favor. Let me say that again. Almighty God, apart from His grace, is not ever satisfied with the conduct of man, not our thoughts, not our words, and not our actions. They are all evil continually. They all fall far short of the glorious standard set forth in His holy law. We are fallen in our father Adam. 
We are conceived in sin, we are born in sin, and we live in outright rebellion against God and against His rightful place as the Sovereign One, reigning over all of creation. Paul has labored to make that much crystal clear for us here in these opening chapters of this magnificent epistle of sacred scripture. All people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are living under the curse of the law, being themselves lawbreakers, covenant breakers. All are condemned by God and justly so. And there is no distinction. All Gentiles sin, and so too do the Jews. We are all sinners. And Paul knows that if we do not come to grips with that truth, with that fact, then what he says next is little more than foolishness to us and only serves to heap more and more condemnation upon our sinful heads. We cannot possibly embrace the good news of God's grace and live in manifest manifest gratitude for that grace all the days of our lives if we do not see that the gospel itself was necessary. And it was necessary because of our sin. Our sin. Not sin in the generic sense. Not the sin of all of those heathens that we like to look down our collective noses at. I'm talking about our sin Your sin, my sin, you and I, apart from the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ, have trampled upon the holy law of God. We have disdained the precious promise of his covenant in both word and deed, even in thought. And because of it, we are condemned by the very law that we like to hold up as being the measure of our righteousness. Yet Paul states very clearly that the law serves not as the measure of our righteousness, but as the measure of our unrighteousness. We must never separate this law and this sin, this hatred towards Almighty God from ourselves. This is us, apart from God's grace. Paul is speaking to us. He is pleading with us to see our sinfulness in light of God's revelation in his word so that we can possibly come to some kind of understanding of Paul's passion for the gospel ourselves. Firsthand. That we may come to share in the passion for the good news of Jesus Christ. Before and outside of Jesus, we are all helpless. We are all captives of sin. Our lives are those of people living in bondage to sin. We are so enslaved that we are unable, indeed we are incapable of ever doing anything at all to escape the tyranny of sin. Beloved, it's a very bleak, very sobering, yet very real look at humanity. And I hope that as we have revisited it again and again from this pulpit, that you have become absolutely convinced that it is also the truth. 
Paul himself has proven it over and over and over again. This is what man is apart from God's grace. We stand before God apart from that grace, condemned, guilty, under the judgment of God. And I hope that having come to grips with that awful truth, that you, like me, are ready, really ready for some good news. Because if you are, then I want to tell you this morning that what Paul has to say next really ought to be the best news that you've ever heard. Beginning here in verse 21, we see what amounts to a transition of epic proportions in this letter. In the first part of this letter to the Romans, the bad news has been laid out in detail. It has been ably defended. It has been proven beyond any reasonable doubt. What Paul has to say about mankind here has proved to be absolutely true. It is true of us. It was true of the Apostle Paul. And knowing the truth, it's time to bring in the good news. It is here that Paul presents the good news that though man is clearly condemned by the law of God and as such most certainly responsible to bear the full penalty under the law for the breaking of it. That is to have poured out upon us the full wrath of Almighty God. There is still, even in the shadow of that, there is still a most wonderful Freedom from the tyranny of sin is still a possibility for the sinner. You understand, redemption is possible. And it can only come through our being justified. That is, our being declared righteous by God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone. We are entering once again into that grand doctrine of justification this morning in this text. And the importance of this doctrine can hardly be downplayed. The doctrine of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is at the center of this epistle itself. And I would argue that this doctrine as it's presented here by the Apostle Paul is indeed at the center of all of Scripture. Salvation is found here. The justice of God against our sin must be satisfied. Our sin in light of God's holiness demands it. And yet because of God's great mercy, because of His perfect faithfulness to His word, we know that He must deliver upon that promise. So you can see the dilemma Yet in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see that his justice and his grace meet at the cross and they embrace one another. His justice is upheld. His people are given new life in Jesus Christ and Almighty God is glorified for all eternity. Paul says in the opening chapter of this epistle that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
And it was and is a central point of this entire letter. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Beloved, the Apostle Paul begins to unpack the latter for us this morning in this wonderful text of sacred scripture. And I want to tell you, I'm so grateful to be able to speak of it and speak of its glory this morning. So let's look now at the Word of God together. I'd like you to follow along as I read from the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, Romans chapter 3, again picking up with verse 21 and reading through verse 26. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate, at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful this morning for the gospel. And even as we just hear it and, and listen to it being spoken so clearly in your word, we are moved. We pray, Father, that you would move us this morning, that this wonderful truth would so resonate with us, that it would be our passion to live for your glory. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 20 of chapter 3, which marked the end of that first lengthy section of this letter that we looked at last week, Paul summed up God's indictment of all mankind with these words. He said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his, that is, in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So we understand that the law is not our means of being made right with God. In fact, it does the very opposite thing. Rather than pointing to us the need to conform to its stringent demands in order to become right with God, it opens our blinded eyes to the fact that we do not, that we cannot justify ourselves by our own feeble attempts of working through the law. Far from pointing us to our righteousness, it continually points out to us our own far-reaching unrighteousness. No flesh will be justified by the deeds of the law. No man has or ever will be able to justify himself in the presence of a holy God. No man has ever provided a righteousness through the law 
that would ever satisfy Almighty God and to meet the demands, the demands of his law perfectly. The law demands perfection. And perfection alone. And beloved, we cannot give it. Ever. Period. It is a fact, one that Scripture points to again and again and again from its very beginning to its very end. Paul himself in this letter has exhausted that point. It is definite. However, praise be to God that Paul does not end this letter here. If he did, we would be little more than inmates waiting as it were in our own cells on death row for the inevitable punishment for all of our crimes. Crimes which we cannot deny. We are rightly, thoroughly, entirely guilty of lawbreaking. No mouth may open and rise up and provide an adequate defense for what we've done. We are condemned. And if not for the grace of Almighty God, this life would simply be one where we waited for the punishment against which we have nothing to offer for ourselves. We have no defense. That's why I would tell you this morning that the first two words of verse 21 really are among the most wonderful, most hope-filled words in all of sacred scripture. Paul, having laid out for us a very detailed accounting of the bad news for mankind, that he is indeed beyond any shadow of doubt a sinner who stands condemned by God, says on the heels of that declaration, But now, but now, there is yet another way. But now, there is a way of escape. A way so enveloped in the absolute glory and the magnificence and the the majesty of Almighty God that one would have to be little more than a blind fool to ever try in vain to steal some of the bragging rights for any of it. To rob God of some of his glory in it. If our position were in the hands of fallen man, truly our situation would be hopeless. But now. Once we've realized our utter hopelessness, and we have looked to God for relief, then these two little words become sweet, sweet music to our ears. The bad news has been delivered. It has been perfectly defended. And it would certainly seem as if hope was lost. And Paul says, but now. Beloved, these two little words ought to ignite something in you this morning if you truly see them for what they are. Paul uses them here to introduce not just the good news, but truly the best news that man has ever heard. They ought to give rise to that grain of hope in your heart, that that grain from which springs an eternal gratitude that's manifested in this life as we live in light of what comes after these two 
precious words of Scripture. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. You have been tried, we have been tried, and we have been found wanting. That's the truth. We are awaiting a sentence that we know is just. Yet before our sentence is pronounced, the Apostle Paul says, but now. Think for a moment about the importance of those two words. When the devil, Satan, that prowling lion, that that cunning serpent, that deceiver, the father of lies, when he comes to you and he tempts you, think of the place that these two little words found here in this letter to the Romans, think of the, the power of those two little words in your defense. Think of what's being implied. The devil comes to you and he calls into question whether or not you are truly even a Christian. Have you been there? You know that feeling, right? He points you to failure after failure after failure of yours in the eyes of the law. He points you towards the sin that you know is all you know all too well is wrapped up under your mask of goodness. He points you to your doubts, to your fears, to the weakness of your flesh, and he whispers in your ear, could God ever stand the likes of you in his presence? Really? Could he actually, even for a moment, being God, overlook your miserable failure to bring him glory with your life? Your failure to think pure thoughts. Your failure to desire his word. Your failure to worship him in spirit and in truth. Could God really take the likes of your sorry, sin-soaked hide into such a glorious place as his own majestic abode? Beloved, if you understand the weight, the importance of these two little words, then you can begin to understand that now, praise God, now you have a defense in the face of those very accusations. Do you understand that this morning? Satan attacks continually in this way. I know that we all wrestle with this. I wrestle with this. He attacks in the way that he attacks and we say, Yes, it's all true. Yes, I fail to love God as I ought to love God. Yes, I fail to give God adequate praise. Yes, I fail to give God glory as I ought to. Yes, I fail to always keep sin at bay. I fail to always silence the foolishness of my flesh through which you speak. But now, these things are all true, but now, do you understand? This is the essence of the Christian's position in this life. This is the way in which faith in Jesus Christ answers the accusations of the law and those insidious whisperings of the devil himself. It's true, but now. It's true, however, by the matchless grace of God, my failure is not the final word. 
but now. There is not a question in your conscience that these two words fail to address. We must catch their importance here in this letter. In fact, we must see the weight that they carry in the entire canon of Scripture. But now, the Lord Jesus Christ. But now signifies the end of your protesting against the charges laid upon you and the indictment brought against you by God himself. These two little words signify our ability and faith to stand up against any and every accusation if we truly grasp their meaning. It signifies the fight of faith. It is taking the charges against us directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. But now, Jesus took my sin there and he covered me in his righteousness. But now, I am righteous in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, I think, rightly said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone found here in this very part of Romans was indeed the article upon which the church either stood or fell. All other answers to these accusations simply move us farther away from the solution to what it is that truly ails us. But now, says Paul, God has revealed the only way of righteousness. And it's glorious. It's the very thing we need. And it truly ought to undo us to see it this morning. Seeing this truth here changed the way in which Martin Luther approached his God. It changed the trajectory of his life and countless others as he, through this doctrine, lit the fires that 500 years ago ignited the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once in a sermon on this verse, verse 21, pointed to these two little words here in this third chapter of Romans and he said this, This is exactly what faith does. It is this protest. It is standing up despite everything that may be said against us on earth or in hell. And we say, no, no one can finally convict me because of my new position in Jesus Christ. But now I am no longer under condemnation. I was once there, but I am no longer there. Beloved, do you see the significance of it? If you do not, I want to tell you something. You simply cannot move on from here until you do. If you're still clinging to your right, your ability to make things right with God through your feeble attempts at keeping the law, I want to tell you, you have missed the glory of the good news. You've missed it. You have no defense. You have no answer to these accusations. And God does not grade on a curve. He is not appeased by your so-called good heart or good intentions. He will not hear your protests. He will not hear your blame shifting or your supposed sorrow to have fallen so short, coupled with an emotional and earnest sounding pledge to get better. 
Regardless of how good you may think that sounds or how noble, faith simply does not say it. Faith says, I'm guilty. And time itself cannot help me now. Even if I could live hundreds of thousands of years in very real regret, I could never do enough to pay the debt that my sin has already run up. But now, Praise be to God that another has come in my stead to snatch me from the grasp of exactly what I deserve. Praise be to God that though I stand on the auction block like Gomer in the book of Hosea, a prostitute with a bent towards more prostitution, upon even tasting the joys of freedom, an absolute ragged picture of unfaithfulness, naked and ashamed, cold and afraid, filled with dread, but now my Redeemer lives and He buys me back. He's purchased me through His blood despite what we both clearly know that I truly am. These two simple words show us a real contrast with what Paul has already said. A contrast to our being under the law. The law condemns rightly. It was, after all, its very design. But now, we are no longer under condemnation. We are no longer guilty because we have been given the spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to what Paul is saying. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. But now, the righteousness that we so desperately need is revealed in Jesus Christ. It's no longer even remotely veiled. Almighty God has shown it to us in the perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension of His only begotten Son. And it's not a new revelation. Not entirely. In fact, Paul says, this is the revelation that was always anticipated throughout the Word of God. This is the Jesus who the law and the prophets were driving us towards all along. It was him with his foot stomping down the head of the serpent. It was ultimately him that was promised. It was him that Abraham looked to and trusted for righteousness. Yes, as through a veil, but to him. It was him that was witnessed by Abraham and Isaac as Abraham raised that knife over the chest of his beloved son and was then mercifully pointed towards the lamb. Caught in the thicket. God will provide the sacrifice, son. Isaac asked, Dad, where's the lamb? I see the knife, I see the wood, I see the, I see the torch. We're here on the mountain, but where's the lamb? God will provide his lamb. God knows exactly what we need. And Abraham believed in the promise of him, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has revealed the righteousness so desperately needed by man, the only righteousness that will ever suffice. 
Paul is and he has been longing to tell them about the righteousness of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Once Paul had seen him, his own righteousness, indeed, all his own works were as filthy rags. It was the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he needed in order to be declared righteous by Almighty God. He needed cloaked in Christ's righteousness. And nothing less than that would ever do. And beloved, all else, anything that we could add to that would be much, much less. It's why Paul must preach the gospel. It's why he lives to point others to Jesus. What a gift. What a salvation. It ought to make your heart It ought to make your joy this morning, it ought to be your joy this morning to stand arm and arm with the people of God and sing his praises with reckless abandon. But now, this is true of us. It ought to be our delight to worship, to feast upon his word, to witness again his body and his blood in the sacrament. To witness the symbolic washing away of sin in the waters of baptism. To understand that the best thing about the ordinary means of grace given to the church of Jesus Christ for the growth and nourishment of faith is that they are nothing less than extraordinary. They are the source of our joy in this life. Beloved, do you see all that hinges upon these two simple words? This passage is what makes question and answer 60 in the Heidelberg Catechism such music to our ears. Do you know that one, 60? I talk about it a lot. If you don't know it, then I highly commend it to you that you look to your Heidelberg Catechism, that you memorize it, that you get to know it, because it's beautiful. It it says this, this is the question, question and answer 60. How are you righteous before God? What a great question. We know the indictment. We've got it. We're clear on why we're unrighteous, right? How are you righteous before God? Listen to the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any of them and am still prone always to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of mine, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all of the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such with a believing heart. Beloved, is that music to your ears this morning? We confess, we confess it as well in the Belgic Confession of Faith. Listen to the words of Article 20. Subtitled, God has manifested his justice and his mercy in Christ. Which is but one of four articles in the Belgic uh, dealing with the glory of our justification. But I want you to hear it echoing the Apostle Paul here. This is what we confess as a church. We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and just sent his son to assume that nature in which the disobedience was committed 
to make satisfaction in the same and to bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. God therefore manifested his justice against his son when he laid our iniquities upon him. And he poured forth his mercy and his goodness on us who were guilty and worthy of damnation out of a mere and perfect love, giving his son unto death for us and raising him for our justification that through him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. Beloved, obviously, We've only just begun to scratch the surface, and barely. In fact, we've really not even moved too far past the first two words of verse 21. But I want you to feel the weight of this transition in this letter. Prior to this point in this letter, Paul has been talking about the bad news, and though the bad news is horrific, though it's hard to hear, And even more difficult in this flesh to ever accept. But now, by the grace of God, it's not the last word. And if you see that here, in these two simple words, then I should not have to remind you of just how much you truly have been given from the hand of your heavenly Father. Though the bad news is true, though we all have earned hell, Though we have no defense to offer and our mouths have been silenced, but now Jesus Christ is revealed as the propitiation for sin, not just in the past, but in the present and forever into the future. If you have embraced Jesus Christ through faith, this is exactly how Almighty God sees you, as He sees Him. Perfect, spotless, righteous, faithful, and deeply loved by the Father. Beloved, if that does not make your heart sing this morning, then go back to the bad news and hear it again and again and again. Because Paul is speaking about you. He's speaking about me. When we accept that, then we will understand that the gift of faith through which we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and every word of God as entirely true and worthy of all of our trust, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be something that is always at the very center of everything that we do. It is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that says, but now the Lord Jesus Christ. It says it in the face of trials and temptations. It says it in the heat of accusations that Satan whispers to our flesh. It will cause our singing, our living, even our dying to be seasoned with the grace of the gospel flowing from new hearts, hearts that belong to Jesus. But now the gospel, the sweetest words ever heard in the history of this fallen world, Beloved, I ask you this morning, do you believe it? Do you embrace it? Is it your confidence this morning? What will commend you before the face of God on the day of judgment? If your confidence is the Lord Jesus Christ,
that it will be more than sufficient. What else could ever compare with this good news? Everything else in light of it is loss. Amen? Let's pray.